Most of you know that we're in this study called Inspired, which is a book-by-book study through the entire Bible. If you're new, we are uh, doing this from the end of August through May of this uh, next year, and we have now reached the prophets of the Old Testament, the last 17 books of the Old Testament. Um, There are 17 books, but this represents only 16 prophets because Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations. Now, we've only got five weeks to get through these 17 books, so it's going to be a quick glance. So I need to briefly take some moments to introduce you what the prophets are all about uh, in the Old Testament. The time period that that it's covered here in these last 17 books is approximately four centuries, from about 800 B.C. to 400 B.C. And you say, well, who are these men? Well, these 16 prophets were God's spokesmen during a time of spiritual drought in Israel. However, these 16 do not represent all of the prophets. There were men and women throughout biblical history that God used to convey His message to humanity. Some were famous, some we don't even know their names. It just refers to them as a prophet or a prophetess. Now, in the culture of that day, The priesthood, those who served at the temple in Jerusalem, were responsible for the daily religious education of the people. They would rotate in with their service in the temple, but when they weren't at the temple, they were teaching others the law of God. Besides that, the priesthood was a hereditary class of people. All who served in the priesthood in Israel were descendants of Levi, who was one of the 12 sons of Israel. And so, unless you were born in the tribe of Levi, you you couldn't serve in the priesthood. In his sacrificial duties at the temple, a priest went to God on behalf of the people. He was therefore an intercessor between humanity and God. A prophet, on the other hand, folks, was an intercessor between God and humanity. The prophet went to the people with the message of God, went on God's behalf. He preached whatever God wanted him to preach. Now, much of the time, that was a call to repentance, uh, a change of heart and life. It was sometimes filled with words of warning and and potential consequences for, for sinful actions. On other times, the prophet's words were filled with great hope and and better days ahead. And occasionally, the prophet was given something by God that was a future event, and so he told about a future event. Unfortunately, most of the time when we hear the word prophecy today, we think it means something that's going to happen in the future. Only a portion of the prophet's message was about the future. Much of it pertained to the very moment in time when the folks were living. And so they proclaimed, whether it was present or whether it was future, the things of God. And unlike the priests, the prophets were not of a hereditary class of people. They were chosen by God, and God called every one of them individually. Now, the 17 books uh, at the end of the Old Testament cover a much narrower period of Jewish history. They grew out of the period after the king of Israel, Solomon, uh, died, and the kingdom divided into two parts. And the first of these prophets, not not necessarily the first to preach, but the first that we find in in the books of prophecy is the prophet Isaiah. Um, Wow, what what an incredible writer, 66 books of prophecy, uh, chapters in the book of Isaiah. And we don't have a whole lot of personal information about him. 
We do know that he was the son of a man by the name of Amos, not to be confused with the prophet Amos. Amos was his father, and many scholars believe that Amos was actually an uncle to the king. Now, if that's true, that would make Isaiah a cousin to King Uzziah. And uh, uh, we do know that he was a part of the royal family. We do know that he served in the royal court as a historian, a recorder of history. Uh, in, in the palace, all right? Historiographer is what I was trying to say. He was a citizen, if not a native of Jerusalem. He was married and the father of two sons. The, the second son has the unique um, character of having the longest name in the Bible. His name was Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Now, that's a lot to lay on an infant in a cradle, isn't it? Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Isaiah served as a theologian, reformer, statesman, historian, poet, orator, prince, and patriot. He loved God's people. He's been heralded as the prince of the prophets and the apostle Paul of the Old Testament. And his ministry was central in time. Isaiah walked across the pages of history about halfway between Moses and the birth of Jesus Christ. He ministered during the reign of four different kings, but wrote some of the most beautiful passages that we have about the king of kings himself. As a matter of fact, who could forget these incredibly beautiful, stirring passages from the book of Isaiah? Listen and read. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What powerful passages that give us an idea of the coming of Christ. And you say, okay, is that really a big deal? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a big deal. Uh, let, me, let me tell you why. I, I want to show you something this morning. <clears throat> Jim Landrum, uh, <clears throat> one of the men in our church here, loaned me this. This is a copy of the scroll of Isaiah that was discovered in Qumran at, at, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. <clears throat> this is a, in and of itself is a rather rare piece. It is one of 50 copies that were made um, in, in Paris uh, of the actual scroll. It's about the same size as the scroll. The printing you can see uh, is in Hebrew. 
<clears throat> the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947 when a shepherd boy threw a rock into a cave around the community of Qumran and heard an earthen vessel shatter. And, and as the story unfolds in several of these caves, the books of the Bible were found. But the most significant find was the book of Isaiah. It was found intact. Now, this scroll, as you can see, would be the way that the scriptures were used and read. And um, <clears throat> what you need to, I want you to see this other picture that take, took place uh, several years, 700 some years after uh, Isaiah wrote this scroll. Jesus has, is 30 years old. He has been baptized at the Jordan River by John the Baptist. From there, he goes into the desert, and in the desert, he is tempted by Satan over a period of 40 days. And when that ordeal is over in his life, he makes his way back to the area, the region of Galilee, and he goes back to his hometown, Nazareth. And on the Sabbath day, Jesus finds himself, as was his custom in the synagogue, and this day, he gets to read. And they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. Now remember, there are no chapters or verses in this. It is just one long manuscript. As a matter of fact, if I unrolled this for you this morning here on the platform, it would be 24 feet long. Now imagine picking up a scroll and opening it, unrolling it right to the place that you want. Jesus took the scroll and he unrolled it to that place. And then we read these words as recorded in Luke. On the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recover, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. When Jesus launched his earthly ministry, he picked up the scroll of Isaiah and he read the words that were for proclaiming his introduction to ministry. Those words come from Isaiah chapter 61. Now, Jim was telling me earlier this week when he dropped off the, the scroll that in subsequent years, most recently, as a matter of fact, with all the testing that has been done on these scrolls that were found back in 1947, testing the parchment and testing the ink and everything else that they've done, they've now concluded that the scroll of Isaiah found around Qumran dates back to 350 B.C., which means... Everything that we heard read and all the, the, the passages that we didn't get a chance to read that tell about the coming of Christ, his birth, his suffering, his death, all of the powerful things that Isaiah did write about the future of the coming of Christ were intact and recorded 350 to 400 years before Jesus ever came. Now, Isaiah would have written them originally about 700 years, but we have proof that they were at least intact, which means that these prophecies were not created after him to make it look like he fulfilled them. They are written longer than what we've been a nation before the coming of Christ, and we have them intact to know that Jesus really is who he claimed to be, that the book of Isaiah is foundational to our trust of God's Word and our faith in who Jesus Christ is.
The passage I want us to take a few moments to explore this morning is, is in chapter 6. It is Isaiah's call to ministry. It is probably one that you have read before. It is one of the more beautiful ones. It's one of my favorite passages in Isaiah. and It's in chapter 6, and it begins in verse 1, and this is what we read. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Now, a seraph is an angel. The seraphim and the cherubim were um, classes of, of angels, and these seraphs in this passage were devoted to the praise and the worship of God in His presence. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Anytime you read a word repeated three times in Scripture, it is a powerful emphasis on the importance of that word. And this is a description of God. He is holy, holy, holy. At the sound of the voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe is me! I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew, with, uh, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here am I. Send me. What an incredible scene in heaven. I, I, I don't think any of us here will experience anything close to what Isaiah experienced in this vision in this lifetime. But now I want you to remember this. If the Apostle Paul is right, and I believe he is when he writes in Ephesians that there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, then that means that you do not have to be in the throne room of heaven to be in the very presence of God. If he's over all and through all and in all, we are in his presence this morning. So from Isaiah's reflections, we learn that in the presence of God, there are three appropriate responses. And I just want to leave these with you briefly this morning. Here's the first one. When in the presence of God, look up. Did you notice what Isaiah said? He is high and exalted. He is lifted up. And so even Isaiah there in the very presence of God is looking up to him. This concept of looking up has always been one of those pictures of worship, that God is above us. Now, now, I think some people, as a matter of fact, I've heard some people say that they're afraid that heaven is going to be boring because they think they read passages like this and they think it's going to be like one long, dull worship service forever. And they remember going to church sometime when they were a kid and the music was off key and the sermon was long and dry and boring. They, if heaven is like that, I'm not sure I want to go. Well, if heaven's like that, I'm not sure I want to go either. You know, as a matter of fact, it, worship shouldn't be that way here. It shouldn't have off-key music, and it shouldn't have things that are relevant, and preaching should at least honor and glorify God. But I, I think we've got a wrong picture of worship. I think when Isaiah stepped into that room in that vision, he was just overwhelmed, and I think that's the way we're going to feel. It, it, it will be the natural response that, oh, there won't be words. I think you'll just, oh. 
I've told you before that when uh, Elsie and I were at the Yellowstone a few years back, we went to see the Grand Geyser, this geyser that is just, it's just incredible in its beauty. I mean, I mean it, it, for me, it makes Old Faithful look almost insignificant. That, that's how I would describe it. And when it, when it erupted, all the people that were standing there watching, I only heard one word, and it was this. Wow. Oh, wow. Now, there are not signs posted around the Grand Geyser that say the only word allowed is wow. That We weren't instructed to say that. It was the natural response at seeing something that was just kind of indescribable. And you say, really? Hot water spewing out of the earth? Yes, it was just that kind of an awesome experience. You just stood there with your mouth open. Wow, this, this is incredible. It's beautiful. Now, I think that's what will happen when we set foot in heaven. It's not going to be like, oh, they're singing again. (laughs) I think it's going to be, wow. And it will be the natural response to fall on our face in worship before the king who is high and exalted. So if it's going to be that way there shouldn't we work a little harder on making it that real here? Start looking for ways that God is working in your life so that you can be wowed by His presence in what you do. Here's the second thing. Look inward. Did you notice Isaiah's response? His response was simply this, oh, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I'm undone. I've seen God. I'm going to die. I have no right to be in his presence. Look at who I am. Got a question for you. You don't, don't, Don't raise your hand to answer this one, all right? Did you ever go on a vacation trip and forget to empty the garbage before you went? What's the first thing that hits you when you enter the garage door or you enter the house? Oh, Oh, I forgot to take out the trash. And it's, it's, by this time, it's rotting and it's rank. And, and ooh, it's an awful experience. Our sin is like a trash barrel that is running over with old and rotting garbage. The very sin of our lives, the very sight of that sin is repelling to God. Do you know how Isaiah put it? In chapter 64, verse 6, he says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. That's not a pretty picture. That's not a pleasant picture, that when God looks at our sinfulness, that's what he sees. We, we don't like viewing our actions and our choices as, as garbage. Uh, there, there are many in our culture today who promote Uh, a a sense of equality, that that everybody should be on an equal playing field. And and so they suggest that we ought not to keep score at athletic events where children are involved because there should be no winners or losers. In in some forms of education, you are are taught not that that there is no wrong answer, that if a child gives the wrong answer to a math equation, you just say, well, that's right. From this perspective, you you lead them through that there is nothing wrong. We don't want to damage self-esteem. Now, I, I don't think we should damage self-esteem, but I think we ought to be honest. You see, Isaiah is very honest here. He says that our best attempts at life 
is nothing but filthy, stinking rags in the presence of God. And it's true, we cannot escape the responsibility for our actions. But that doesn't keep us from at least trying to find someplace else to blame or someone else to blame. Author Philip Yancey writes of being contacted by a television producer um, to appear on a show, and this was shortly after Princess Diana had been uh, killed in that accident, and, and explain on this show how God could possibly have allowed something like this to happen. And Yancey responded to the producer. He said, could it have something to do with a drunk driver going 90 miles an hour in a narrow tunnel? And then he said, how exactly is God involved in that? Wow. It's it's true. We're always looking for somewhere else to lay the blame of the guilt of our lives. Just listen around you. A teenager gets pregnant, wonders why God would let that happen to her. A businessman cheats on his taxes and gets caught by the IRS, and when he gets fined, he gets mad at God because God didn't protect him. We hear it over and over again. I'm not a bad person. I didn't do anything wrong. It's not my fault. I'm not a sinner. But that's not true. We are sinners. We we get our perspective so blurred in this world that we cannot see clearly. When I get up in the morning and I glance in the mirror, things look okay to me. That's because they're all blurred. (laughs) I don't have my contacts in yet. When I don't have my contacts in, everything just runs together. There are no details. It's just a blur. I look pretty good. (laughs) Then I put my contact lenses in and all of a sudden I see a lot more clearly and oh, oh. Oh, there's a lot of work to be done here. My hair is matted. It goes in every which direction. I got stubble all over my face, and so I start to work. <laughs> I get done, think things look pretty good. Elsie has one of those lighted mirrors that on the flip side is a magnifier. You know what I'm talking about? I can look pretty good, I think, and then I pass by. If it's on the flip side, the light's on. I just glance down, I think, oh. You see every spot and blemish and wrinkle and every tarnish, and it just is not a pretty picture. Every imperfection is magnified. The brighter the light, the clearer the mirror, the worse I look. When Isaiah stood in the presence of God, it had the same effect as a high-powered mirror in bright light. God's perfection only magnified Isaiah's imperfection. No wonder he said, woe is me, I am undone. You see, the closer we stand to God, the more visible our own weaknesses and imperfections. However, the farther away we move from God, the better our imperfections begin to look. And when we move completely out of His light, everything becomes a blur. The details just blend together, and we become comfortable again in our filthy rags. You want a level playing field for everyone? I'll give you a level playing field. Here's the one that levels it for everybody. We are all sinners Isaiah writes about the mountains and valleys equalized, the crooked roads straightened, the rough places made level, and the rugged places made a plain. Sin is the great equalizer of all humanity. It matters not how important or unimportant you are. Whether you're born of royalty or born in abject poverty, there is one place where all humanity is the same. We are all sinners in need of the grace of God. It is here that the score is the same for everyone. 
It is here that we all have the same answer. God may have paid the price for our sins, but we have to admit admit to the guilt of our sin and change our ways to make his payment effective. Someone put it this way, confession without repentance is just bragging. Isaiah, however, gives us this grand hope. In chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be as wool. When your life is covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, the old filthy rags look like beautiful white robes. Here's the third thing. Look outward. God says, now, now who, who are we going to get to go for us? And Isaiah, I'm here. Send me. This is another thing. When you catch a glimpse of the greatness of God, when you understand what God has done, when that seraph touched his lips and said, your iniquity is gone, your sins have been taken away, Isaiah said, yes. I'll do whatever you want me to do, God. You see, in response to his saving grace, there ought to be the response of, you sinned, I'll go. And here we need to understand how God works. It's not about our talents and abilities. It's about our willingness. It's not our work for God. It's God's work through us that matters. It's not the size of our help, but the size of our heart that makes the difference. A cheetah can sprint 70 miles an hour, 70 miles an hour, but it has a disproportionately small heart and cannot sustain the chase. If the cheetah doesn't get his prey on the first run, he will have to give up the chase. The smaller a man's heart, the less room he has for serving Christ. With a small heart, your service gives out quickly. Today, we have many of our local Christian ministries that we partner with here in this community represented in our midst. You've heard from some of them already this morning. Would you take time to encourage them today? More importantly, would you take time in your life to serve with them as we work together for the cause of the gospel? Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Can you say the same thing? I'm here, God. I'm available. I'm willing. After all, everything you've done for me, the least I can do is serve you. So as we enter this season of Thanksgiving which ought to be an expression of thanksgiving back to God for all he's done for us. As we enter the season of Christmas, when we celebrate the fact that God came into the world to bring salvation to us. In the midst of everything you do, take time to serve. Lend a helping hand. Visit someone in the nursing home. Share some baked goodies with a shut-in. Host an international guest in your home. The list is only limited by the size of your heart. Why look outward? Why? Why not look outward? Jesus said the two greatest commandments are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. To love God is to love others, to to look outward. Here's the other reason. It's because life is so short. In the same daily newspaper, you'll find both obituaries and birth notices. And if you spend all of your life focused only on self, you will live an empty life. But when you serve the king by serving others, 
There is a joy that lasts beyond the moment. Isaiah's words are true. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Our time is short. But the Word of God stands forever. So in our limited time, let His Word guide you every step of the way. And let us follow Isaiah's example and make the most of life by looking up, looking in, and serving out.